Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Types, bringing you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. My name is Alexandra Zur, and I'm again your host for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. I am joined by Gina Mosley today. Gina is an Ingeborg Hochmeier professor at the Institute of Geology at the University of Innsbruck in Austria. And today's episode is all about caves. If you haven't been crawling around in caves as a child, and if you don't know that caves exist around the world despite on Antarctica, then this episode is made for you. Gina is very passionate about caves. She started as a child to join her mom to trips into caves, and she is still fascinated by caves. Since her studies in Bristol in the UK, she investigates Bilio themes in caves around the globe. Nowadays, she focuses on caves in Greenland. She tells us how her Greenland cave project started in the first place, what information she can retrieve from the cave deposits. In the end, we end up chatting about Gina's outreach activities and how she ended up in the American Breakfast TV. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and get as excited as me about caves. If you like our stories from the coolest places on the planet, then subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you would like to get in contact with us, just send us an email to thesearepolartimes at gmail.com Or you can tweet Apex at polar underscore research on Twitter. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and get as fascinated as me by Gina and her passion for cakes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Times. Today, I'm joined by Gina Mosley. She's a professor of paleoclimatology at the University of Innsbruck in Austria. Hi, Gina. How are you? Hello. Good morning. I'm very well, thanks. Are you? Thanks. I'm fine. So in the first bit of the podcast, we like to get to know you, our guests, a bit more what your background is and how you came to what we call the polar world. So how did you end up working in Greenland? And what's your background for your research? actually? Yeah, thank you for those questions. Um, Yeah, so I uh, specialize in paleoclimate research from caves. Um, so that's essentially researching uh, how the climate has changed in the past beyond the instrumental uh, era. And to do that, I'm working in caves. And, and I started off this as a PhD student in the Caribbean. And then as my research path has progressed I've kind of moved away from the nice warm climates of the Bahamas and the Mexico uh, and the Caribbean and, and moved further north so now I, I've expanded my research focus to um, Arctic and periglacial environments so I'm working in the Alps of course because I'm based in Innsbruck uh, and then also in Greenland uh, and specifically in the caves in northeast Greenland which so far are not so well studied uh, or not studied at all until I came along. And yeah, so this, this is kind of wh wh where I'm at now. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. How was your first interest into caves? How did you end up studying caves in the first time? Love of caves when I was very young. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I was on holiday with my parents in Cheddar in Somerset in the UK. And we were staying on a campsite where there was a guy running a kind of outdoor sports activity center. And he was doing like rock climbing, archery, uh, canoeing and also caving. And my mum wanted to try caving and asked me to go along with her. And uh, I said, yeah, why not? And, and from that first moment, I was absolutely bugged by the underground environment. So up to that point, I was always quite adventurous anyway and climbing trees and rolling around in the mud and encouraged to have outdoor adventures by my parents. But I really loved this cave called Goat Church Cavern in Burrington Coombe. And in hindsight, it's, it's a horrible cave, <laughs> actually. It's small and grotty, um, but it re really appealed to the inner explorer in me and the, and, the, and the inner child, which has clearly still never left me. You know, just crawling around in the mud underground and wondering what's around the next corner was really, ex really exciting. And then from that point on, I uh, 
every year we would go back on holiday to the same place and I would save up the pocket money from my newspaper rounds that I had after school and invest that in doing as much caving as possible during that one week in the summer holiday. And then when I went to university, I went to Birmingham University to study physical geography. And um, I kind of got into the paleoecology and the quaternary climate part of the course and found out that it was possible to do paleoclimate research from caves. And uh, there were a couple of professors there, Ian Fairchild and Andy Baker, who were specialising in this specific field. And I was kind of knocking on their doors, basically asking if I could help them out in the field and things. And, and it went from there, really. I kind of found out that it was possible to do science in caves. And I just thought that's the best thing ever. And um, I remember one PhD student I was helping out, Lisa Fuller, she said to me, doing a PhD is the best kept secret. And at that point, my eyes lit up and I thought, wow, yes, this is what I want to do. And, and also till that point, I'd, I'd found, I'd actually found a degree fairly boring, if I'm honest. The, the going to lectures, listening to lecturers, you know, the old school kind of way of teaching. And when it came to doing my bachelor dissertation and doing my own research and, find, you know, working out my own research question and how to address that I absolutely loved that bit so that's kind of how I then decided to try and pursue a career in academia I guess um, it just went from there. It's so fascinating if you can actually follow your dreams or your childhood uh, activities and hobbies throughout your entire career and life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is so special about caves? I mean I'm fairly familiar with many um, archives for paleoclimate research because I'm also working in paleoclimate research but so far I didn't hear a lot about cave research in, in the paleoclimate community so what is the special thing about the caves? Yeah we um, as a, a field I would say we've really taken off in the last, last decade using caves to study paleoclimate really I guess started it started kind of in the 60s was developing through the 70s and the 80s and then in the 90s it was accelerating and then and then since I did my PhD in the 2000s it's really taken off since then and now there's a whole community of uh, PhD students working in caves specifically on the speleothems which are the mineral deposits in caves that we work on And it's really taken off because these speleothem deposits are secondary mineral deposits that form within a cave. So that means they're not initially part of the cave environment, but they're deposited within the, within the cave after the cave is formed. And so these can be stalactites or stalagmites, which you might be familiar with. So the stalactites are on the ceiling and stalagmites are on the floor. Uh, or flowstones, which form in the same way as stalagmites and stalactites, but they're more like carpets of mineral rather than candlesticks of mineral deposits and these form uh, from water that's transported from the ocean through the atmosphere and then through the environment above the cave through the soils and in that process it picks up uh, a chemical signature of of the conditions at the time the uh, climate and the environment and then that chemical signature gets trapped Uh, inside the speleothem deposit. And so these speleothems are a fantastic archive of paleoclimate. And their advantages are that they can be very well dated uh, using uranium thorium dating. So they go back about 650,000 years. That's our standard dating limit, I guess. And um, we can go back further in time with other methods, but that's more tricky. And with uranium-thorium dating, we can get really high precision, so two per mil. So if we have something that's 10,000 years old, we can have an uncertainty of plus or minus 20 years, which is fantastic, of course, or 100,000 years plus or minus 200 years. So um, also caves are very well connected to the environment, but um, well protected from the environment as well. So when glaciers come through and bulldoze away, archives on the surface the caves are still there underneath kind of well protected from that and still recording what's going on on the surface 
And then caves are also found all over the world on all continents except Antarctica. So we can access many different climate zones. So these are really the advantages of caves. And, and they're really a fantastic archive in addition to your deep sea records, your ice core records, your lake sediments. Um, so it, it's just another, another archive in our paleoclimate toolbox, I think. And, and I like to, I really, really always like to stress that, that whenever journalists ask me, like, why, why are caves the best? And I think it's not about that. It's about the, the, the whole picture, the big picture of bringing all the different archives together and, and getting the complete uh, information and the complete picture for the time period and the research question that we're trying to answer. Yeah, I agree. It's always nice to combine several archives or the information you can get from several archives because each archive is just uh, recording a tiny bit different things than, than the other archive. It's interesting that there are no caves in Antarctica. Why is that? Well, the caves that we are working in are in limestone. And as far as I know, there's no limestone in Antarctica, but uh, <laughs> I should maybe double check that. I've just, uh, I've just been involved with uh, a proposal to try and get to some caves quite far south um, of New Zealand. So there are caves relatively far south and also there's some off the coast of Chile as well. But yeah, as far as we know, there are no caves in Antarctica. But also Antarctica, a bit like Greenland, is is hard to access maybe there are caves there and they've just not been discovered yet you know it really requires a lot of effort to just go somewhere and look and see if there's caves and then on top of that see if they have the speleothem deposits in there and traditionally scientific funding bodies aren't going to fund that kind of research where you just go and see what you might find or might not find You know, you kind of have to have an idea, first of all, or, or a proof of concept before anyone will give you that sort of money to go and do work like that. So, so it could well be that there are caves there. They just haven't been found yet. So we make a shout out to every scientist who travels to Antarctica and finds a cave just by accident, then please get in contact. <laughs> yes, definitely. Because this is how it kind of the Greenland project started, really. In the 1960s, the U.S. Army and U.S. Geological Survey were working in Greenland and they were looking for places to land aircraft in an emergency. It was a Cold War and they were really active in the Arctic. And as part of those investigations where they were looking for ice-free landing sites, uh, some caves were discovered in northeast Greenland and the geologists happened to also be cavers. And so they wrote up a very short article in the National Speleological Society Bulletin, which is the American uh, National Caving Journal. And they just wrote this short article saying, we found 12 caves in this short one kilometer long valley and they're on three different levels and they are mostly blocked. So they're not very long, but one cave contains speleothem, contains a flowstone deposit. And so that was written in 1960. And then It took until me in 2015 to go on my first expedition to Northeast Greenland to really uh, explore and study these caves and, and develop a whole scientific project around them. But if they had not just written that short article, no one would have, you know, no one would have known they were there necessarily. Um, so it is really important, you know, no matter how small a finding might seem to one person, if, if you're on an expedition, it's really important to write up an expedition report and get it out there because you don't know who might benefit from it in the future. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> how did you end up to read the paper and how did you then decide to go to Greenland? I mean, you, I guess you needed some, some funding also to go to Greenland. It's not that cheap. Yeah. We, um, well, this started when I was doing my PhD in Bristol and I was in the University Caving Club, which is the University of Bristol Speleological Society, UBS for short. And like all students, you know, we had our weekly social uh, in a pub and I was there one evening in the pub with the cavers and And the caving club was fantastic. It wasn't just students. There was still, there's a lot of generations still hanging around in the club and going caving and working together. And so I was talking to one of the older cavers, Charlie Self, 
who unfortunately is no longer with us. And he was just saying, yeah, there's these caves in Greenland. And he, he said that there's some scrot holes in northeast Greenland. That's what he called them, actually. So meaning they're not very exciting and not very interesting from a caving perspective. So someone that wants to find... We have a joke in the caving community about finding caverns measureless to man, which just means huge caves that go on for hundreds of kilometers. You know? <laughs> and so in Greenland, when you have caves that are 10 meters long, they're not very exciting to a caver anyway. And he was telling me about a huge cave in northern Greenland, which he had tried to get several expeditions to in the past to funding problems and logistics, his expedition had also never got off the ground. But because of that, he had a whole folder full of photographs, materials, correspondence, um, uh, letters to the geologists that were there in the 1960s that had found these caves. And he just offered to lend it to me. And I, I took this folder at the next, the next pub uh, meet the week later, he gave it to me and I I went and sneakily photocopied everything at work, probably, you know, exploded my photocopying budget. And then I had that copy, gave his originals back to him. And to be honest, you know, as a young PhD student, I had no idea what to do with this information. So I just put it in a drawer for many years. And periodically, I would take it out and browse through it and, and dream of an expedition to Greenland, but not thinking any more about that. And then in 2013, I, I did that once again. I just happened to get this folder out and start browsing through it. And, but then starting to really think, oh, what if and maybe and perhaps. And I thought, well, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to, to send an email and just, just find out what it would cost because I had absolutely no idea what an expedition to Greenland would cost. Um, and I was way off, I must admit. So I was about, yeah, a third of what, a third, I had about a third of the price in mind, to be honest. Um, and so I, I just sent some inquiry emails to logistics companies and the figure came back and I thought, oh, okay, that, that, that's not going to happen then. Um, but it kind of, by that point, I got the bug and and it was like, eating away at me a little bit. I didn't want to just leave it there. So then I started making more inquiries about, well, how could we make this cheaper and how could we get this to happen? And by chance, a good friend of mine, Mark Wright, who came on the first expedition in 2015, he said, oh, my brother-in-law is a polar explorer and he's won the polar medal. And I was just going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and, then, and then I looked up this guy, Clive Johnson, and found out he has his own polar logistics company and he was absolutely perfect so then Clive devised a way for us to go to northeast Greenland in 2015 without needing helicopters and really it was an adventure so we we flew up in a twin otter we shared the logistics of the twin otter we inflated a boat we crossed a lake in a boat we then hiked for three days just to get to the caves and so this all made it uh as budget friendly as possible, let's say. It was still quite expensive. And then with that, it seemed more realistic. So then I was writing to companies to try and get the funding. And in the end, we had 59 different sponsors for that first expedition, which was a lot of administrative work, but well worth it. And from that, we were able to visit the caves, discover new caves, also find out that there was so much speleothem in northeast Greenland, far more than the one sample that had been written about in 1960. And so that then gave me the, the pilot data and the proof of concept to then get a much bigger project together and to return in 2019. Oh, that's an amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so fascinating how it all sometimes just works out in science if you know someone who can bring you somewhere and then you can just go from one spot to the next. Yeah, I, I would stress, I think that uh, my career is definitely built on finding the right person at the right time and having the right conversation and things just fall into place and have, have gone from there, basically. <laughs>
Yeah, sometimes ADA just have to lie around for a couple of times and then at some point they make sense. Yeah. So what did you then discover in the cave and how are the caves different to the caves you had been used to study before? You said you went to the Caribbean and more tropical places. I could imagine that the caves are, I don't know, different. Yeah, I mean, I think caves are even different within a small region, wherever you are within the world. Um, so the caves in Greenland are very simple, actually. Um, they're kind of very horizontal. There's nothing technical in there. You don't need to do big abseils. Like, like if you go to China, there's a shaft that's over 500 meters deep, you know, and there's nothing like that in Greenland. They're just they're just kind of like a train tunnel really you know they're kind of 10 20 meters wide well up to 10 20 meters wide up to 10 meters high something like that and then you just walk in them they're very sterile um and by that i mean there's there's not a lot going on they're not very active today there's no rivers flowing through them there's no stalactites or stalagmites forming today there's no drips of water uh, there's no bats in there um, there's nothing living in there that we can that we can see or that we have seen so far. So they're they're kind of dormant environments, but but when they were forming, they would have been like something in a more temperate region. You know, you need a lot of water for a cave to form of that size. You need a river to be flowing through the rocks to dissolve away the rocks. Uh, for the speleothems to form, you need water to be able to access the caves. So, so what we see today is, is, is they're kind of frozen in time, you know, and, and really they were much more active in the past. And that, that's the period that I'm interested in, the period when water was actively getting into the cave, when the, the climate was much warmer and much wetter uh, than it is today. And so, so, yes, so today the caves are very different to what you might find in the UK or the Caribbean or something. But certainly when they, you could look at the caves in the UK or the Caribbean, for instance, and say, this is how the caves in Greenland would have been at some point in the past. Okay, so that means your records you're going to analyze or you're collecting, they have formed quite some time ago. And now you can uh, look into different periods uh, back in time. Yes, exactly. Um, so today, the region's very arid. There's less than 200 millimeters per year of precipitation. And the ground's frozen, there's permafrost, and you even see huge, great big hoarfrost crystals in the cave. They're absolutely beautiful. And we made the mistake one day of, um, uh, we actually bought, a, we wanted to drill a sample and didn't want to drill inside the cave because it was minus 14 degrees. So we brought the sample out of the cave to drill outside and we poured some water on it just to clear the dust off the surface. And it instantly froze, of course, because the rock was so cold. But because there are speleothems there, which need water and that water needs to be able to get into the cave, then they could only have formed during a climate that was warmer and wetter than today. So Our research questions are centered around trying to tap into this time into the past that was warmer and wetter than today and to use that as a, an analog for what we could expect in the future. Um, so all the climate models are predicting that uh, the Arctic gets wetter, it gets becomes rain dominated in the future, uh, that there's a loss of sea ice, which means that you get more moisture from local sources. And, and we think this is exactly the, the kind of environment that we, we are trying to tap into in the past with the speleothems and so far we we published one paper which was covering uh marine isotope stage 15a which is about 580 to 560,000 years ago something like this and this uh, was an interglacial like today but it it was a particularly strong interglacial in the sense of the orbital configuration so how earth was relative to the sun um, and in terms of the insulation that was received in the polar regions this is like the third highest peak in the last million years so it, the polar regions at that time uh, especially received a lot of solar radiation which i think is what has then led to us 
led to the region really warming up and us being able to form speleotherms. Though I should say that the models also show that at that time, the global climate was relatively cool. And so even though we had the higher summer solar insulation, greenhouse gases were relatively low in the atmosphere for an interglacial. And so overall, the global climate was fairly mild, though at the polar regions, it, it was it was quite extreme, it seems to be. Okay, so it was not, it's not directly comparable to the conditions we have today. No, definitely not. So it's not comparable in the sense that the, the solar forcing is different and the greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere were different. Um, so it's not a direct analogue, but I think the, there, there are many ways to get to a similar climatic and environmental condition, you know, so it was warmer and wetter. There was a loss of sea ice, um, which is ultimately where we're going in the future. It's just the driving forces to get there were maybe slightly different. So you can actually, with your data collection and your analysis, you can actually contribute to the prediction of what could happen in the future in Greenland or also globally? That, that's our wish and our hope. Um, I think so far to integrate our results into any predictive climate models is, is a long way off. Um, but hopefully this is kind of, you know, this is the, the rationale and that the ultimate aim, I guess, in the end, yeah. You said that uh, the expedition was more expensive than you expected in the beginning. And I have been to Greenland as well, so I know what kind of transportation you need, equipment, and that it's not just uh, taking a plane and being there. What is the most challenging part of the expeditions to Greenland? Is it just the logistical part to go there, or is it also the conditions on site, which are also quite different to other not polar areas, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm talking to polar early career scientists, right? So everyone knows what it's like to work uh, in the polar regions. Uh, so I guess I'll just draw on my personal experience, which would be different to people's for sure. I, I would say, uh, from my perspective, the most challenging part is the organization beforehand. Um, because there's so much to do, especially, you know, working in the, in the uh, Green, Northeast Greenland National Park. Um, I recently wrote, wrote a paper on um, process for applying for the permits. And, you know, that took months and months. And there's so many. And then there's so much paperwork afterwards to do. Uh, and then on top of that, there's, um, you know, once, once you're there, you need to have everything in place if you've forgotten something you can't pop down to the diy store and pick <laughs> something up so so when you when you ship a generator to greenland you also have to think about uh you know replacement spark plugs and these and various other things you know just to make sure that you have that you're completely self-sufficient when you're there and of course we're not working even in a small settlement we are thousands of kilometers away from from anyone that, that could provide us with some uh, duct tape or a spark plug or something like that so the, for me the most work is definitely beforehand and uh, trying to think of everything that might happen and being prepared for that once there in the field it kind of just progresses and goes along as as You know, there's no, not a lot you can do then to change the, uh, the, the logistical part of it in many ways. So once there, I'm very much enjoying it, actually. It's, it's a great experience. And, and because we're working in northeast Greenland and in the caves, we're only working in the summer. Um, so we have 24-hour daylight. So, so that's not a problem. Also, the, the region being the ice-free region, you know, we're not, it's not like we're up on the ice sheet in, in extreme conditions there. So actually it's really nice. And, and I remember in 2015 being sat waiting for the twin otter to pick us up and the twin otter was delayed due to bad weather and not where we were. We were in a beautiful Mediterranean climate. It's looking out <laughs> over this nice lake, drinking cups of tea. Um, and we'd found, we'd found an old, deck chair that the Americans had left in 1960 so we're kind of sat on a deck chair in northeast Greenland drinking tea and that that's not hard right so that's wonderful but I guess what we do have to be aware of is um, we are in a very remote environment and 
and caves can be dangerous so even though i've said that they're relatively easy you know that there's still you still have to be careful and accessing them can be difficult if we're going up a very steep scree slope you know if or, or a rock falls from somewhere um, we have to be careful not to have an accident because an accident in such a remote environment is or could become a problem especially if we're in a situation where where we can't evacuate because the weather is poor where we are or somewhere else so we do have to be careful and and, and not just you know go go ahead uh, all guns blazing in some ways and this is why one reason I, I have a very strong team with me I, I always have a specialist rope access expert who means we very safe can we can access the cave safely and we have a medic with us as well um, just in case something goes wrong and we really need some support and hopefully the medic is not the person that becomes ill of course <laughs> that would be <laughs> so, good yeah um, of course we all do some advanced first aid training but we're not medics ourselves so uh, yeah I think that this is yeah, this is uh, the challenges of working in the Arctic, for, from my perspective anyway, in, in the caves. Do you have to take care about polar bears? I'm not sure if they, I know that they're mostly on the sea ice, but I heard that some appeared on the ice as well. So how is it if you're kind of in the zone in between? Yeah, this, this is... Um... A good question. I remember preparing in 2015 and asking everyone about polar bears and they said, oh, you won't see any polar bears up there. You're too far inland and uh, and they're out on the sea ice. Blah, blah. And then we landed and got out the plane and at the end of the landing strip, dead polar bear. So, <laughs> <laughs> after everyone said, no, you won't see any, no chance. There, there it was. And then, and then I turned to the pilot and I said, but But we were told there are no polar bears here. And he said, polar bears get everywhere. And at that point, it kind of it dawned on me, really, that, that they could be everywhere. And I must admit, we, we have never seen a polar bear that's alive uh, where we're working. And despite that, we have, of course, done the polar bear defense courses. We set up the camp so that it, it's, you know, our cook tents and sleeping tents are away from one another and uh, the toilets somewhere else and uh, the tents are not in a circle so that if a polar bear does come and uh, it won't feel trapped if it gets in the middle um, and of course we we've learned about polar bear behavior and we have the rifles with us and all these things so we do we have uh, done the awareness courses and safety courses but we haven't seen any uh, at our field sites We did see some in Denmark's Haven in 2019, which is where we stopped overnight on the way up to the northeast, uh, up to northeast Greenland. We've seen them at a distance out on the sea ice, uh, but not up close. And I would say that the, the animals that we do see more frequently are the muskox, and they are notorious for getting scared and, and running, you know, so you have to be careful about those. And we've heard wolves as well. We heard wolves in 2015, though they didn't come near us, but we could we could hear them howling in another valley. Um, and I think there's quite a large wolf population in North Greenland. So still have to remember that it's not your place to be there and uh, it's a living habitat. Of yeah. But despite all these exciting moments when you're not sure if there's a polar bear or not coming, what is the best moment in the field or what drives you to go there every time again and to go to the cave is it just the cave itself uh, no i think um there are several ways to answer this of course um i mean there's there's obviously the scientific research questions you know i really i really am invested in trying to understand uh how the arctic will respond to a warmer world you know this is a major research question which is important for for everyone right it's not just people in the arctic but really for the whole world um so I'm really invested in that. Uh, but of course, there is a, a perk of getting to do that work in Greenland as well, which, which I can't deny is part of, part of you know, the attraction as well. And I think, I think it comes down to 
yeah, this like inner child and explorer and adventure in me. I, I, I like working in the Arctic. It's a beautiful environment. I enjoy being there. It's, it's just wonderful. Um, the caves are great, but also the surface is wonderful as well. And, and I think yeah. we, we have the fantastic opportunity with the caves to explore a part of the world that has never been seen by anybody else before, you know, so so some caves have been visited, but we're exploring new ones all the time. And it's such a privilege to be the first person to see a part of this planet, maybe even the only person to ever see a part of this planet. Maybe nobody will ever bother to go back there. I don't know. And that that is a, a huge privilege. And I just feel so lucky to be able to do that and combine that fantastic experience with with also doing important science you know I think yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Did you encounter any problems as a woman in polar research or was there someone telling you you cannot go or you cannot set up your own expedition because you're a woman and you need strong men? No no one's ever told me that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no one has ever told me that and um, I feel very I don't know what's how to say this really Throughout my career, I would say I've only ever been supported. Up until more recently, I, I had a baby nine months ago, and now it's more challenging as a mother. But as a yeah. woman, without a baby, it was definitely not a challenge, I would say. So, I mean, it goes back to, you know, when I was a child, really, my, as I kind of mentioned, my, my mom was quite adventurous and encouraged me to start. Things, so I only ever had a, a strong role model and... I never, ever had the impression that I couldn't do something because I'm a woman. I would say I had more of a feeling I couldn't do something because um, I, I wasn't from a very wealthy family, I would say. So I would say my social class was more of a barrier than being a woman. And so that was quite a challenge. Um, but yeah, I've I've always academically and professionally not had any issues there um, and even to the point that since I've been in Austria I've benefited from being female in the sense that I've had a fellowship specifically for keeping women in science and now my professorship is an Ingeborg Hochmeier professorship which is funded by Ingeborg Hochmeier the CEO of a company called Madel, which um, make cochlear implants And she invests money into promoting women to pro professor positions within the University of Innsbruck. So there's a whole group of us in Innsbruck that benefit from her funding, actually, which is really wonderful. More recently, with having a baby, I think that's that's different because I notice, you know, when you apply for grants and things, you normally get like a one year For, for every child you have, you normally get like another year on, on like the, the limits of when you can apply for things. But, but actually, you're, you're out for much more than a year. It has a much bigger impact than one year, you know. So for the whole nine months I was pregnant, I couldn't do any lab work because I wasn't allowed into the lab for safety reasons. Yeah. And now, and now I'm off. You might hear her in the background. She's banging on the door. <laughs> but... Um, And now I'm I'm technically off work, but still actually still working between 20 and 40 hours a week, even though I'm on maternity leave, because it's not possible to get away from academia. So and you can't you can't just stop because when I go back, I've still got projects to run and money to bring in and teaching to do. Yeah. It takes the time. I have to read the email. I have to reply to the email, you know, so there's a lot of administrative work associated with being with the world we now live in where people can contact you all the time you know so it's not possible to really get me so so yeah I think going back to your original question being being a woman has not been uh, a challenge um being a mother is more of a challenge I can imagine it's not as easy as having a baby at home but it's encouraging for every female scientists out there that it's actually just possible to do everything you want to achieve in your career yeah it is totally possible yeah it's hard work 
<laughs> it's really hard work, but it's definitely possible. And I wouldn't want it any other way, actually. I, I, I love my work. I don't want to give that up. So. Yeah, I think you can always find a way how to deal with things and how to handle them. Yeah, if you have support, then that's the most important part. I had one more question. Um, you're focusing on caves in Greenland. Are there other caves in the Arctic, for example, in Siberia, in Canada? So would there is there the potential that this movement or this development of cave research in the Arctic is getting even larger? Yeah, um, for sure. I think I mean, there, there's a lot of limestone in the Arctic. Basically, there's caves all over the place. But in my case, I'm, I'm the only one really working in the high Arctic. We do have, uh, I do have colleagues already working in Siberia, but they're at like, 58, 60 degrees north. We're really at like 80, 82 degrees north. We're quite a bit further. And then there are also people working in Canada and Alaska as well. Um, so one of my colleagues in Innsbruck, Paul Wilcox, now has a new project in Alaska as well. So I think I think there's huge potential for the speediofem research in the Arctic. I think there's a, there's a very strong chance it's going to be warm climate-based research, you know, because we can't grow speleothems during cold yeah. climates. So it's going to be very much biased into one particular direction. Um, but yeah, there are, there's limestone all around the Arctic. And, and even in um, like my, my projects started in Northeast Greenland in these caves that we, we knew were there. And in 2023, I'm going to expand to North Greenland with an expedition partly funded by the Rolex Award for Enterprise. And that, again, that came about because the, the cave that I'm targeting there was written about in this 1960 paper. Um, and this is the one that Charlie Self really wanted to get to. Um, and so my, my whole... Uh, initial plan was to go to this cave and then have a look for others in the area. And since then, I've discovered that um, there's a, this whole portal of geological information and, and uh, topographical information for Greenland, which includes oblique aerial photographs taken in the 1990s in northern Greenland. And we're currently going through those photographs and we've identified tens of caves I would say not hundreds but definitely like many many huge caves uh, all across northern Greenland um, and these are the ones that we can see from the air um, never mind like the small ones that you can't see and then that same band of limestone goes across uh, to Ellesmere Island and, and, and keeps going so I think there are caves everywhere in the Arctic is <laughs> the short answer yeah oh, that's that's cool nice Caves are kind of a special thing, and I'm not sure. I mean, I grew up in Germany, and I knew that there are caves, but I never got a relation to being able to do science in caves. If your research team in uh, in Innsbruck is quite large now, do you do any kind of um, science communication or outreach to, yeah, just get the information out to the public? Yeah, I think I think we're quite active in Innsbruck in science communication. I was recently in. Uh, an IMAX film called Ancient Caves, which is narrated by Brian Cranston. And that was a project which took, which took a few years to put together. Uh, and the, the premise of that is kind of following me around different caves, um, looking uh, at times in the past when the climate has changed very rapidly. And even in the film, we're talking about Milankovitch cycles and, and all these things. And, and it's really... It's a it's a fantastic film which which um, suffered with COVID. We had a premiere in March 2020. I forgot. I've lost track of time. I don't even <laughs> yeah. know where we are now. In March 2020, we had a premiere in Minnesota. Loads of great reviews. I was on breakfast television in the US like many times promoting the film, talking about science, talking about paleoclimate caves, uh, and then the next week, all the cinemas shut down. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but 
It's slowly being released now, especially in the US. And because it's an IMAX film, it will be on release for several years. It's not like a typical Hollywood film that's in the cinema for a few weeks and then gone. IMAX films come out on a rolling basis over multiple years. So slowly it will find its way around the world, I hope. Um, so that, that was one major project I was involved in. And then, you know, we're very active on like Twitter and Instagram and these sorts of things as well. This year is the International Year of Caves, which means that all around the world, cave-based researchers are promoting caves and the science and the protection of them and conservation and all these other things. And so it's a big publicity campaign. And uh, Christoph Spursel, who I work with in Innsbruck, he has been making a whole bunch of films um, in Austria with our research group uh, to support the International Year of Caves and Casts. So these can be found online talking about all the different research that we do from Innsbruck. Yeah, so, so we're, we're very active, I would say. Um, and then more recently, with my Rolex Award, there's a whole team at Rolex, which are kind of dedicated to outreach and, and promoting the Rolex project. Rolex Laureate projects uh, in the media. So every couple of weeks, there's a new opportunity to talk to the public. And I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful position to be in, to have a team of people promoting your work for you. Like, how special is that as a scientist? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds great. I will make sure to include uh, at least a Twitter handle and some links in um, the show notes that people can find that. Okay, thank you. All right, now we are coming to the end of the podcast and we usually like to give our guests the time that they can just uh, speak about whatever they would like to talk to us. Do we have anything which you would like to plug? Oh, yes, <laughs> many things. Um, but now I would, I would like to talk a little bit about my upcoming expedition, the one to North Greenland, uh, which is pencil for 2023, depending on COVID, of course, and, and how the world develops. But um, on that expedition, I have room for two other scientists to join us. And with my previous expedition in 2019, I brought along another four scientists that could benefit from the logistics being in place. And, and uh, my project funded their participation in the uh, expedition. And then they have been able to collect samples and go away and develop their own uh, research based on the work they did in 2019. And that's something I'd also like to do with the next expedition in 2023. So I have space for two more interdisciplinary polar scientists to join us. So if there's anyone out, out there that would benefit from uh, a trip in the summer in July to um, Wolfland, Nibo land, Hall land, warming lands, that sort of area, then please do get in touch with me, uh, probably via the Greenland Caves project. But more importantly to me, is that these scientists, I would really like them to be Greenlandic people because I really have a feeling that uh, I, I see it not just, it's on my own expedition and also on other expeditions, but I am, I am uh, guilty of this as well. But my expedition so far, I haven't included any native Greenlandic people. And for me, it's really important that they are on the next expedition. And I have spoken to colleagues in the ice core community and glaciologists, and they also have the same impression as me that they don't really have Greenlandic people involved in the science. They might be there in the logistics, but not the science. So if anyone can help me with trying to find some Greenlandic people to join the expedition, that would be great. I am also trying to develop a course let's call it a greenland paleoclimate course aimed at with the aim of educating greenlandic people in in all this fantastic work that we do, um, but so that they can get an interest and be 
in the future generation of Greenland paleoclimate researchers. And I've, I've like looked at the University in Nook and they, they're mostly social science based. I have not really found anything there. And I'm also in talks with the uh, Greenland Climate Research Center, but that's also kind of going very slowly at the moment. I, I don't really know if that's going to work out. Um, but basically this is something that's really important to me. Um, so if anyone can help me there with identifying Greenlandic people or um, or how to proceed with this uh, little uh, or huge project, then then that would be great. I agree that it's always nice to have some native people in expeditions and also to get them the chance that they can go on their field. There might be a chance that uh, people from the Apex Project Group about indigenous people in the Arctic might know someone. Yes. So I will just talk to them and send them the podcast in the end that they can have a listen at them. That would be really, really wonderful. Yeah, that, that would be great. And also, like, we're fully willing to, if, I mean, the chances of finding someone that has an existing uh, expertise in paleoclimate research in Greenland, I think, are, are relatively slim, if, that, if that's not too um, ignorant. I, I don't know. But also... If someone is just interested in joining that expedition and exploring the caves, um, we're very happy to train them up. You know, we have all of next year uh, and the year after. Um, so we can certainly be, you know, training people up that want to become cave explorers um, if, if it means that we can uh, invest in the future. Sounds like a very nice idea. All right, and with that, we are already at the end of another episode of Powder Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Thanks a lot, Gina, for being here, for talking to us, and for telling us so much about your fieldwork and about your science and the caves in Greenland. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed this uh, conversation, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to listen to it myself. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.